This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Government and waste. They seem to go together like a horse and carriage. Love and marriage. This time, it's waste at the city. And the Toronto Auditor General's report revealed that the city was overcharged by as much as $13.2 million for emergency hotel shelter costs over the past two years. And that figure was for things that were actually excluded in the contracts between the city and the hotels involved. These hotels, of course, to house vulnerable homeless people during the pandemic. Now, the city was wrongly charged and paid 3% room surcharges called DMF, uh, uh, destination marketing fees, $2.4 million. Also, $5.3 million in facility surcharges, or a 15% cost tacked on to meal invoices. And the city even spent 2 to $3 million for rooms that were not used, that were vacant. So, I don't know. The report noted that some staffers processing and paying these invoices were not aware of the contracts. Really? How many people work in accounting for the city? Actually, we have been asking that question of various people since before 8 o'clock this morning. So I guess there are too many to count by the people in the media relations business down there because we don't have an answer. I bet it's a lot of them. And I bet that they are significantly more careful when they pay bills that are coming out of their own pockets. So, is that harsh? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And I'd like to welcome David Crombie, the former mayor of Toronto, Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO and guest panelist, Anna Bailau, who is the outgoing councillor for Ward 9 Davenport and a deputy mayor for the south area of the city. Thanks and welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Why don't we start with Anna Bailau? You're on city council still right now. Uh, what do you think when you see a report like that? Uh, listen, Libby, it, it's never acceptable that the city should be uh, overpaying for any services. And and so um, I'm, I'm glad that the Auditor General is uh, looking into these things. Uh, I think she's bang on on all her recommendations, and, and it's very disappointing to see these findings. Um, we know that the shelter support and housing had to move really quickly and and so there were clearly things uh, that were not uh, you know uh, properly communicated to the accounting. People did not uh, uh, were, were not aware of the contracts that were being signed by one department and how to pay the bills. And these things need to be uh, carefully looked at. And uh, there's no excuse. There's uh, we need to uh, get that 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 money back and. Uh, and um, we need to follow her recommendations. That's why we have an auditor general. And that's why we need to, uh, we value her work and her recommendations. I just want to make one point important that, that I, I want to emphasize is that I think we should not, uh, th- these issues should not um, uh, overcloud the need that there was to pivot into these shelter uh, support services that needed to happen. We had a big pressure at the beginning of the pandemic. This is this was congregate living. The the, the shelter support and housing was was getting advice from our public health that there could be up to thirty percent of of risk of death. In, in yeah, yeah I don't think anybody yeah. is arguing that. And generally I, I just speaking, to make clear. I just wanted to yeah. make that clear. 
generally speaking, when, when you contract for a service like that, uh, you maybe pay a deposit, but the invoice comes a little later. There's, it's, it's not like, it's not on fire. Nobody's going to get sick you know, uh, about the paying of the invoice. So, David Crombie, I, I mean, does this sound at all familiar to you? How does this happen? Well, it happens from time to time. Of course, as Anna pointed, as Anna pointed out, um, there, there was a, a rush to get things done. I know that that's not a long-term excuse, but certainly it's understandable at the time. I think what we need to really understand is whether or not the city is being taken Sorry, David? Whether the city thought it was being taken advantage of uh, or, or whether or not um, they, were, they were simply not doing their job. But I, I think a report uh, by the, the city officials in response to the, to the Auditor General should be able to tell us that. What so uh, the the I again you know I I certainly don't dispute that that these shelter beds were necessary, but I I, I that doesn't explain to me why uh, these invoices were paid in that way. Well, no, it doesn't. That's why I say that the, we'll be able to know uh, more, far more, and we'll make conclusions when we get a report from city officials in response to the attorney general. Uh, Lauren, what do you make of it? I mean, I just find it outrageous, frankly. I agree. It is outrageous. And I think the tragic thing here is that with all of that money overspent, they could have housed like 52,000 more nights for people experiencing homelessness. And, And that all just kind of went into these bogus fees. Like this destination marketing fee is what gets me. That's supposed to go towards nonprofits to promote tourism within a region. You get them on your bills in Niagara Falls anytime you stay at a hotel in Ontario. And I mean, this really, like the city of Toronto shouldn't be paying a destination marketing fee to hotels for housing vulnerable people. So um, I'm seeing a lot of people online that are are really upset about this. And, and I think that some of the onus here should be put on the hotel operators as well. Like the, the city should have caught this maybe, but I mean, what were the hotel operators doing there? Like, were they hoodwinking the city? Like, no, like, did they know what they were doing? Or was this just an an error? How do you? No, no, no. Come on. $13.2 million is just a mistake. They just thought it's the city and we'll tack, we'll tack this on. Hope nobody notices, but. And, and, and Libby, if, if, if I could just uh, interfere in Mm -hmm. here. And and again, I, I, I think it's unacceptable. Don't, Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, but just this was, we were transferring thousands of people into these hotels and having thousands and thousands of people starting to work from home as these agreements were being done. And so there's clearly, I think there was a, a, a set of circumstances that occur that, um, things fell through the cracks. Now, I agree as well. Like how is you are a hotel owner and are also charging all these things. I just hope that one of the recommendations is to go back and to, to get this right with some of these hotel owners. I just hope that we're not going to have any issues with that, that everybody understands that these were really fees that shouldn't have been paid. Let's make it right. I think we did. I think the city did the right thing by having people sheltered in a safe way. And it was actually beneficial for them because those hotels were empty. And if we, we weren't going to have those uh, homeless people in those hotels, they would be hem- empty and losing, losing millions and millions of dollars. So I certainly hope that the city is going to get some cooperation and get these $13 million uh, back and learn some lessons. There's definitely lessons that are going to be learned in here. And that's why these reports are so important, not only for the situation at play, but also for systemic changes that need to happen inside the city. David, how difficult is it to recoup money? And do you see an opportunity here? If, if, if they did, if they tried to hoodwink the city, is there any possibility that you say, uh, you know, maybe we should charge you criminally. Well, uh, that's why I I would hang my hat uh, on a report to council. It's one thing for the the uh, the the um, auditor general to make a recommendation. That's important, but that, that's just the start of it. There should be a re- full report uh, by city officials. That includes the city citizen uh, on what to be what's to be done, and then people can both know what the city intends and, secondly, be able to measure what the city does by watching it over time. Right now, the notion that somehow you may or may not be able to chase them, that's not good enough. What's good enough is a report 
that's public that goes to council, and council decides in the course of action, and the public can then measure whether or not the city council is doing its job. Lauren, one thing, this report from the Auditor General didn't name these hotels. I mean, it'd be pretty easy to go back and find out where, where these people were housed, but um, is naming and shaming perhaps a, a, a good shortcut to getting that cash back? Well, I certainly think so. I mean, um, like David said, there will probably be, hopefully, be a report that comes out of this. I know this uh, Auditor General report is set to go before council on June 15th, and hopefully they will recommend sort of more in-depth look in which the hotels will be named. But you know, if Sheridan or Radisson, I don't know if they were, you know, all these airport Uh-oh, hotels. Oh, don't libel them. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know if they were. I'm just naming random hotels. But if these hotels near the airport, if their brands are being kind of impeded, I think they're going to be a lot quicker to fork over the cash that they owe the city if their names are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people out there in the audience, I'd like to hear from you. What What do you think the best course is? So first of all, uh, are you annoyed that this is what happened to your tax dollars? I I still don't get the explanation that somebody paying a huge bill wouldn't check it against. You don't even have to read the contract. I know even here in our smaller company, if there's an invoice that goes to accounting and they have a question, they just call me up and say, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, I either explain or it's not paid. So people out there, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. What about these huge overpayments? And people, what do you think is the best way to try to get the money back? Uh, do we need to threaten some kind of legal action or just um, old fashioned naming and shaming? Anna Bailau, what do you think? Should we just name them? Uh, it it has helped in the past. I understand. You know, sometimes we have uh, back taxes, or you know, sometimes uh, Section thirty seven. Uh, I remember there was a report a while ago that some Section thirty seven monies wasn't collected for, for, by certain developers, and it sometimes it does help. Um, uh, I think that we should uh, uh, have a plan to 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 go at it and give them a first chance. But if uh, if we see that uh, we're not having the cooperation, I think that uh, that could certainly be helpful. Uh, David? Well, uh, I can't go much further than saying what I've already said, and that is I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, suggest that somehow there be under-the-table discussions with whether or not people want to pay or not pay. There needs, there needs to be a public accounting, not just a kind of private accounting, a public I, I, accounting, and that can, that can only come from a report that from all the appropriate officials that say, here's what happened, here are the recommendations, and council deals with it. That's a public way of doing it, not a series of private conversations. I, I, I just want to make clearly, if I could say, I wasn't saying that this should be private conversations. I agree that there should be a report in a course of action, and there should be a report oh, back okay, to council right. as well. But uh, th- that report may or may not necessarily name them. Uh, it, it could be a report that has a course of action without naming the, the hotels. Like we have many, many reports that come at it that way, and then there's a confidential report. But I, I'm just saying that, yes, we need accountability. Yes, it needs to come back to to the to council on what money has been able to to be uh, recuperated and and eventually it, uh, it it might be helpful to have uh, to have the names out and how how long does it take to get a report like that well, well usually <laughs> go ahead who's talking oh no no go ahead is that anna yeah, yeah. she's no better <laughs> Um, uh, usually we, we have, um, uh, a response back from the, um, uh, the unit that, uh, that has been audited, uh, went with the auditor's report, report right away. So you'll probably see already some in council. I think that what you might see is actually, um, counselors asking to go a bit deeper on this and you'll see some motions asking for a report back. Now, we're not meeting this, we're, we're basically at the end of the term, so you'll probably, uh, and there's no council meetings between July and, and January, so you'll probably have to have something back in the next term. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, that's no, too no, long. <laughs> but no, and I, I think the, uh, I think if, if the, if the mayor, ask for a report from the officials, uh, and he can make it public, or she can make it public, then I think that's he, the appropriate way. Yeah, he's 
he's here. He's still here till November, and we hope we don't have to wait that long. And if you have to wait for council to 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 give direction, then I think that's too long, and I don't think you need to wait that long. Okay, well, uh, people, we are still uh, inviting your calls on this, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. And city staff, I would still like to know how many people work in accounting for the city. (laughs) And I hope it doesn't take until the next term. (laughs) Okay. So we still want to know, but there are a bunch of other issues. Now, uh, Anna Bailau, uh, you are not running again. Uh, uh, Why not? Uh, Libby, it's been three terms, 12 years. I think it's a good run. I think it's, uh, it's time to pursue other ways of contributing to, to the city and, uh, and, continue to work on what I'm very passionate about, but politics for me was always a way to make change. And when I came in here, I always said, you know, um, I, 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 I want to work, uh, on a few terms and I've always supported term limits. I've been somebody that has always been supportive of that. So I, I came here to make change, not to be changed, not to change my principles. So I thought it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, time to pursue other ways of, of contributing to the city. And, and I love the city love uh, uh being able to work on issues as you know i'm very passionate about housing and and equity issues and and so i'll i i i will continue to to contribute uh in, on those issues but uh but i think it's time to allow somebody else to serve as uh, the city council for davenport uh david do you think there should be term limits i don't think there should be term limits but i think there are limits that people should should come to and anna has done exactly the right thing three terms is sufficient uh, and I think that we, the city benefits from the change. But I'd, let me say, if I could, uh, that uh, I, I did work m- many years ago when Anna was getting into the sort of housing issues. She's done a great job for the city and through the city council. It's not, a, not an easy thing to do. So two things, I guess. Three, maybe. Uh, one, um, she's leaving at the right time. Two, she made an enormous contribution, which is very often not understood and, and not, not, not appreciated. But let me offer it, that appreciation. And thirdly, um, she will find, I think, because she's Anna Bial, she, she will find that she'll want to continue to make a contribution to the city in some other way so that she's uh, gone from city council, but not gone from the city. Okay, you know what? I'm going to take a call on this hotel issue, and it looks like it's quite a contrarian one. Patty in Etobicoke. Hello, Patty. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Go ahead. Love your show. Thank you. Um, with my work, I go to a lot of these hotel shelters every week and i'm telling you now the city will never get its money back because these hotel owners are going to be claiming damages the condition of these hotels on the outside i can only imagine the inside i i go into the lobbies and use the bathrooms but they're never going to get their money back well, we'll see about that, but um, it's one thing to claim damages if they exist. It's another thing to charge for things that are excluded in a contract that make no sense, don't you think? I completely, completely agree. And can I just add one thing? Yep. I hope everyone is voting today and voting especially against this 413 highway. Uh, uh, David, did you put, did you put Patty up to this call? I I, I don't know, but I love I love her already. (laughs) Okay, Patty, Uh, biggest waste of money ever. We need to take back the four hundred seven, which is empty every day. A a lot of people, a lot of people believe that, Patty. Thank you for your call, and David. I still have not ever heard an explanation why the four hundred seven solution doesn't work. No, and I think it can. I, but it's not. Uh, it's, the fight's not over, Lib. I mean, the, the elections, the provincial elections, over. Municipal elections are coming. There's a long road to hoe that needs to be done with respect to highway building. And I can tell you that the people that I know who are opposed to 413 and looking for a solution through a mag- more imaginative use of 407, they're not giving up the fight. They've got renewed vigor after the provincial election. Okay, well, that is, uh, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, we have a couple of other things. Uh, I'll get to the provincial election in a moment. Uh, but we also have unvaccinated cops going back to work. Not everyone is thrilled about that, Lauren. No, um, 
Yeah, I mean, when it was first announced that unvaccinated Toronto Police Service employees would be, you know, taken off the job, a a lot of people agreed with that. I think uh, in November, the last poll I saw on it, um, Canadians supported the firing of employees who refused to get vaccinated anywhere at that time, 70%. So support for that was high. And I haven't seen any recent polls about where it's at now, but I have seen some chatter online about people being a little bit nervous about police and and first responders not being vaccinated. We are in a very different position now in terms of the COVID pandemic than we were, you know, six months ago. But, you know, a lot of police officers also, you know, not a lot, but some very high profile cops quit at the time over these vaccination mandates, including Doug Ford's daughter's husband. So that was a big hubbub. So be interesting to see how those officers who left left their careers behind because of this react to now all of these police officers who are unvaccinated being allowed back. Oh, oh speaking of Doug Doug Ford's daughter, and I have to say, I, f- I feel badly for him. You know, some people have conspiracy theories that he puts her up to this, but I'm sure it is a, really a thorn in his side and probably upsets him but she's she's been at it again she is uh yeah she's very passionate and uh, vocal on her instagram Mm -hmm. stories about you know why vaccines are a scam and and different things like that you know she's given advice on how to uh adjust masks so that they don't actually work and they can (laughs) like like she's um yeah i I feel bad for for um premier ford as well in that in that sense because she's very public she's got like forty three thousand followers and yeah very much like American style kind of like right wing. That's that's where I get it. She was about the gun control debate. She was talking about like how they can't take away our rights. And, and like that's not even a right in Canada. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank goodness. It's, yeah. it's not a right. Uh, Anna, do you have a, a feeling about the ca- cops going back unvaccinated? You know, you know what my concern is, is that I, we're not out of this yet. Right. And and we're doing super well because so many people got vaccinated. And even though that COVID is still within us, people are not getting as sick. And so they're not, you know, uh, overburning our, our healthcare system. And so we can have everything open, we can get business open and so on. But, you know, I think it's it's way too soon. And, and we're going to start with the cops and who's next? Everybody's going to be and, and the level of vaccination is going to go down. And then and then what? We're going to get back to lockdowns because numbers are, are again, going to be too high. So I, I just uh, don't think this is uh, this is the right move. Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, I'm hearing a lot of arguments from people saying, hey, if you're vaccinated, what are you worried about? Uh, and and if we know now the current variant, I mean, it, it's not going to protect you against getting it. You just won't get that sick. But, you know, one of the things people don't talk about enough is that even if you have a really mild case or maybe even asymptomatic, you can end up with long COVID. Yep. Yep, exactly. And so I think that, uh, you know, the precautions are still necessary. Um, and, and, and again, we, we, we want to make sure that our hospital, that we have hospital capacity to deal with COVID and everything else that is going on, right? All the other diseases, all the backlog and surgeries, everything else we have going on. So to not, ha- and we, and we know that we've been able to be where we are right now and enjoying the city and enjoying a lot more and having our business back open because we've been doing so well on our vaccination rates. So I think taking our foot off the pedal right now is not a good thing. Okay, well, seek and you shall find. I just got the numbers on the city's accounting services. So it's a total of 67 staff, and they have 21 staff members on the accounts payable team. And it is their job, along with their divisional partners, to review, enter, and approve invoices That's right. Invoices are supposed to be approved before you pay them. Um, uh, And they apparently process a lot of invoices in a year, but still. Uh, (laughs) But thank you for that information, city staff. We appreciate it. (laughs) Are they going to name and shame the accounting staff? (laughs) No, 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 no. No. Okay. Um, We have a few minutes left, so let's get to uh, the provincial election that's on today. And as our caller said, I please people get out and vote. I had a very good experience in and out 15 minutes. And that includes five minutes waiting for the polls to open. So um, 
David Crombie, uh, you know, you just mentioned that even if, as expected, Ford gets another majority, that highway, uh, the fight against the highway continues. So what other implications are there uh, given another majority government? Oh, well, I think many of the issues that even our kindred issues to 413, uh, the uh, the role and mandate to the conservation authorities, the, uh, the uh, I think, intemperate use of... Uh, of ministerial zoning orders. Uh, there are a number of issues that will con- continue on. The election, uh, uh, I, I think the polls are probably right that the, the uh, Ford government will be returned. But the issues continue. And, and, and I, I don't think you're going to find people taking their, their foot off the pedal. I think you're going to find that they'll be fought uh, uh, for the quality or lack of quality that they are. So uh, the, the, uh, the, the, sure, the election will be over. Municipal elections are upon us. They're very important. And there's also a long public process. The, the, the real lesson is that we need to insist on public processes. And the Ford government got into a very bad habit of trying to shut down as many public processes as they could. They need to uh, look again uh, at what they're doing on that to allow the But are you going to be able to stop them? I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's what we should try. But really I mean, try. just even in terms of the public processes, like now there's going to be the son of MZO ministerial zoning orders. Are are yeah. are you going to be able to uh, keep those processes in place? Well, we're going to try very hard. There's lots, when I say we, it's lots of organizations, both small and large, are going to continue for the fight to to, to make sure there's justice done in those issues. I mean, I. If you're really interested in these issues, you don't give up. You keep on struggling because for 413 is an absolute. I'm going to go through the litany of reasons why you should be against 413. But once you get into it, you say to yourself, it's dumb. It's really a costly mistake. And it's going to hurt us and our children and grandchildren for a long time. Mm. Uh, and one thing that I have to say that Ford gets high marks for, and that is, uh, playing well with others. And, uh, he's been pretty good about giving the city money. And also what this surprised me when it happened, when I saw him get along so seemingly well with former bitter foes like John Tory and Patrick Brown. Right. Well, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. Um, politics and, and, and political change. You know, isn't just sort of good guys and bad guys. It's whether you're right or wrong on this particular issue. I mean, I could support Ford on a number of issues that I would know about, but on on 413, on MZOs, uh, and and those kinds of issues we've been talking about, the future of the uh, conservation authorities, they're wrong, uh, and and they should be called out for it. On the other hand, uh, he has tried to do well on some other issues, and certainly working with other levels of government, even going against many in his own party across the country. Uh, Lauren, you have anything to say about that? I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned how he gets along well with other people because, like, you're totally right. He presents so well as this down-home kind of just humble guy. He calls everyone folks. He talks about... The friends, w- friends. My friends. My, my friends. And and he really is, like, as a person, likable, I think. Um, when you watch him speak and you see he, he goes out to the community, and when you think about some of the stuff that's going on with Highway 413, I mean, the ecological destruction all of, there are endangered species that that live in that corridor that could be losing their habitats um so yeah it, it, he doesn't really seem like your typical evil person that would do something like that he, he's almost like the opposite of what you would expect based on what he's doing like with ministerial zoning orders and, and highway 413 okay that's pretty pretty damning indictment mm-hmm. anna uh I, i'm gonna take a couple calls before we wrap up but anna like um 20 seconds the election uh, well, he clearly is going to get a majority, probably we, even with more seats. And and the the impressive things with Ford is he thrives in crisis. He shines in crisis. Um, uh, I don't maybe it comes from his background. I, I don't know, but he he you know if you see even the difference before the pandemic and how he was able to to um, uh, address some of, of these issues and the way he came across. Um, you know, there's lots of issues that that people have issues with um, and, and, but the way that he, he was able to shine during the crisis, I really over overpowered uh, a lot of the issues that everybody 
knows that that we have to deal with and big challenges we have to deal in this province. Yeah, and uh, one thing I have to say that I like about him is that he does backtrack when he thinks he's wrong, even though we might think he's wrong on other things as well. I'm, I'm going to give the last word uh, to a caller who I hope will be brief. Uh, Darko in Etobicoke, what would you like to say? Yeah, we get 154,000 new immigrants a year. We don't want land development. We don't want lot splitting. We don't want single dwellings going into high rises. Where are we going to put these people? Okay. Thanks, Darko, for your call. Uh, I, we could do a whole show on that, lady. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lot, the answer to that is there's lots of places already available and can be built on, and there's more coming. We're not against growing. We're against the way it's being done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. see if Diane in Scarborough can also make her point in 20 seconds or less. Hi, Diane. Hi. Uh, nice to talk to you. My comment is uh, the previous Liberal government let 30,000 nurses go, and that was in Ford's uh, advertising. He had four years to fix that. He could have rehired them. Nobody said anything about that. That's it. Okay. It astounds me what that man does and backtracks. Okay, Diane, thank you for that. Okay, uh, there's still a lot to talk about. It was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much, David Crombie, Anna Bailau, and Lauren O'Neill. And we'll chat again very soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. We've been talking about, we've been tuning into the town. After the break, we're going to tune into ticks. Also very serious when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's tick season and researchers are warning us that it could be particularly bad this year as the population of ticks carrying Lyme disease is expected to grow across the entire country. Now, ticks can infect both humans and pets. Last year, the federal government received reports of 2,900 cases of Lyme disease, but that's probably really low because not all cases are reported, not all cases are detected, because it's a disease that can be very hard to diagnose. Testing is not that easily available, and it can be severe. Health officials also advise people to be diligent when spending time outdoors. It looks dweeby, but you should wear long pants tucked into socks, use insect repellent, and thoroughly check for ticks after returning home. So if you have questions about ticks, Lyme disease, and what's happening this year, we have people with the answers, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now we go to Dr. Rob Kaladi, an associate professor of evolutionary ecology and Ecological Genomics at Queen's University, and Dr. Alone Vaisman, Epidemiologist and Infectious Disease Specialist at the University Health Network. Doctors, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Dr. Kaladi, why is this going to be a particularly bad year for ticks? Well, um, we don't know for sure, but usually um, when we have uh, cooler uh, wetter temperatures like this. Uh, one of the things that keeps ticks down um, and away from us is when it, when temperatures get very hot and dry, ticks have a tendency to dry out. And so they tend to stay down in the litter. But when we get these uh, sort of cooler, wet uh, springs like this, that's just perfect weather where ticks can climb up on a, a blade of grass or a stick and just hang out and just wait uh, until something brushes by and then that's when they, they grab on. Dr. Vaisman, uh, what are you expecting? Yeah, certainly there's a lot of people coming in, uh, doing a lot of activities during the summer because of the pandemic. People are excited to go out. So I anticipate there's going to be a lot of presentations to the emergency departments and family doctors and walk-in clinics with patients who have various rashes. And certainly I think it's important for all those clinicians and all those patients to be aware that 
Lyme disease is increasing in prevalence over the last few years for a variety of reasons, and that people need to be uh, aware that this is a possibility as, in terms of a rash you might experience when you go outside. Okay. Dr. Kalati, uh, how do you uh, at le- experience it? How does it present, to use the medical lingo, what would you see first? Uh, in terms of symptoms, I think that's, that's probably um, Dr. Basin's area. Um, uh, okay, Dr. Vaseman. So you see, what, what it's it's a, a ring rash, right? That's right. So the the name of that manifestation is called erythema migrans, and it's seen in more than three quarters of the patients who have Lyme disease, and that's really the most important primary manifestation of the illness. And so it's described as a red rash that's at the site of inoculation where the tick was, and sometimes described as a target or a ring form, and usually develops within a few days after having been exposed to the the tick. So that's the most important thing for people to recognize that it's at the site where the tick bit them and inoculated the Lyme disease. What's this business, Dr. Kalati? I I remember advice that you have to check for ticks, and if there's a a tick, you have to pull it off and keep it, but only pull it off in a certain way. Am I uh, on the right track here? Yeah, so so that can certainly help. uh, You know, um, the the other side of the the equation is that there are other pathogens that ticks can carry besides, uh, you know, Borrelia is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So there, uh, these other diseases are, uh, sorry, other pathogens are not as common, but, um, you know, they're, 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 there's still a possibility of, um, of, of, of getting one of these infections. And so that's where having the tick can be particularly helpful um, for diagnosis. And I, I believe the Public Health Ontario Labs will um, will uh, screen the tick for pathogens, and uh, that would that would all be done through you know through your physician. Um, but but as you said, when you're removing the tick, you want to be really careful. Um, you know the ticks have if you you can see some interesting photos online of the the tick mouth parts, but it, it looks like this uh, sort of uh, like if you imagine a, a long mace with these spikes on the side, and it just kind of drills down its head drills down into your skin. Uh, and so as you're pulling it out, you want to be very careful not to just pull it and have the head pop off stuck in your arm. Uh, but you want to reach down and, and slowly pull it out by the head to try to get all of that tick out um, and, and then save it so that it could be tested. Well, I, I, I think you're you're affecting my lunch after the show. It's <laughs> kind of gross. Um, you, that sounds complicated, Dr. Vaseman. You have to pull the tick. What do you do with the tick once you pull it out? And and do people get this part of it right? It sounds difficult. I w- wouldn't want to be pulling a tick out. Right. So, yeah, if you detect it, just as it was mentioned, uh, if you're very carefully pulling the head out so as to not leave a head inside the skin. Once you do remove the tick, uh, what you could do is a few things. You could take a picture of it and send it to your health professional who you're going to see. You could also take it to a local hospital or a walk-in clinic, and they could submit the tick for um, analysis at public health lab. Um, some of that's helpful for epidemiologic reasons. Some of that might be helpful for you personally in order to diagnose what the tick is and what the diseases it might carry. So there are a variety of ticks in Ontario, not all of them, and, and only the, the Ixodes, the one that we've talking about so far, that one carries Lyme disease and other infectious diseases as well. So that's really the purpose of, of uh, taking the tick out. Uh, outside of getting rid of the fact that it can transmit the disease to you, what you can do with the tick is actually send it for te- sending it for analysis. Now, apparently, earlier in the pandemic, Toronto Public Health quietly got rid of its tick surveillance program. Silence. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think, can I say one thing? I think... Uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not involved with um, public health, but I think one of the reasons is just that uh, once they find that uh, you know uh, Lyme disease is present in an the area, then um, sampling more ticks doesn't really help. Uh, you know, it's it's better to just assume that it's there. I, I think, but but maybe uh, Dr. Basson could fill us in more on that. Dr. Vaseman? Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, they may have changed their uh, process to processing ticks or to looking at them. Uh, even still, even if you you just bring it to your health professional, they can actually just take a look and try to understand which tick it is. So that might be another helpful reason to do that. 
Okay, I've got to take another break. On the other side of the break, I'll take some of your calls and your questions before we go to the break. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking ticks here, and uh, they're out there, and there are more of them than there have been in the past, so we've got to watch out for it. And they can also get your pets, so we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are talking about ticks. And boy, this is a day when various officials are getting back to us while we're on the air. And uh, so it is with Toronto Public Health. And they have responded that Toronto Public Health has just restarted its tick surveillance program for this year. And the program had been paused to focus on COVID-19. So uh, I guess... I guess that's good news, Dr. Vaisman, that it has been restarted. Yep, certainly it's good to see, uh, it's good to understand the epidemiology of the disease with every season and how much more we expect to see. Uh, certainly people should be aware that in southern Ontario in many areas, although it used to be very restricted uh, geography, now it's far more prevalent in many, many areas in southern Ontario. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Bill in Toronto. Hello, Bill. Yeah, I, I've had uh, dogs... Uh, always black labs. But anyways, for like the last 20 years, I walked them in uh, Don Valley every day. I'm down there for an hour, maybe two, three hours a day, and I take them up to Bracebridge. And you know what? I've, I've never, I, I mean, if I got a tick on myself, I, I would think I would know it. But if I got a tick on my dog, how do I know my dog has a tick on him? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's certainly... Uh uh, you know, quite a challenge, especially if, if you've got uh, a dog with dark uh, fur like that. Um, you know, there are uh, um, there are um, drugs and vaccines available for dogs uh, to limit tick bites, and uh, as well as a vaccine for Lyme disease. I'm pretty sure for dogs. Actually, no, I have those, but I'm you know, if a tick got into my dog, how would I know it? I mean, there's a lot of hair on a dog. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it would take a, a pretty careful search, I think. Um, but if you've got these, um, you know, I, I'm not a veterinarian. I don't know the details, uh, but, you know, some of these drugs that um, they, they prevent the tick even from attaching, uh, biting the dog, then you're, you're probably in good shape. You know, there just may be the odd chance of a um, that. Oh, yeah. You know, no, that, I have those medications. They cost about yeah. $300 a year. So just a minute. Are there, are there um, Bill, thanks for your call. Um, are there are there vaccines for people, preventive vaccines? Uh, not yet. I think there are um, there are some late stage clinical trials that I've heard about. But uh, again, I'm not an expert on on the vaccine side. Okay, let's take a call from Joe in Newmarket. Hello, Joe. Yes, hello. How are you doing? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, I got to challenge the doctors uh, a couple of things. First of all, I'm a long-term uh, sufferer from Lyme, chronic Lyme, and um, a lot of times there's no rash that appears. Um, so I think they're wrong about that. If um, you know, Some people just have symptoms and no rash, so that's the first thing. Um, second thing, Getting a doctor to treat you for a long-term Lyme is almost impossible. Um, a lot of times you need long-term antibiotics. And um, the diagnosis and the testing is horrible in Ontario. Um, I had to go to the States for three years for treatment. And again, it's almost impossible to get treated for Lyme in Ontario. Okay, I'm going to let them respond. There's some weird noises on your line, Joe. So uh, just listen to the answer and I'm going to let you go. Uh, uh, yeah, is it getting it, it, better here? Well, the, I, think, I, think you may, I think those are two important points. Uh, the first one being that uh, um, it, is, it is possible to have Lyme disease without having seen a rash. Uh, we've certainly seen that. We have a lot of uh, patient partners that we work with. And, and in fact, I'll just maybe plug uh, our website, mylime.ca, where we are doing, uh, this is not me, but my, um, my collaborators are looking at symptoms of patients, including patients who have these, uh, 
long-term symptoms. Uh, and so uh, maybe I would encourage Joe to check that out. Um, that's a cur- current study that we have going on. And that, that comes directly from our discussions with patients about these issues. So I, th- I think um, in, in terms of the you know treatment, that's probably something um, that I'll, I'll defer to you. Uh, Dr. Vaseman. Dr. Vaseman, yeah. Yeah, I've heard, um, I don't know if it's getting better and it's because it was was so little known, but I've I've heard from other people in previous years that it's very difficult to get a proper diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, so this area has been unfortunately uh, politicized and it's turned into a whole different thing when it comes to Lyme disease. So it's important to recognize what are the stages of Lyme disease and what are the disease that it causes. So we spoke about the primary Lyme disease, which was the primarily the rash, which is no, noticed by most people, but there is still some people who don't notice the rash. The secondary disease and the tertiary disease can slowly develop later on if patients uh, aren't treated for the first disease. And those symptoms of the second and tertiary disease might be uh, chronic fatigue. It might include joint pains. Sometimes patients have uh, heart manifestations as well. But it's important to recognize that there's a lot of uh, businesses out there who take advantage of people, especially in the United States, providing patients with chronic uh, treatments that have no proven value, as well as testing that is not accurate and uh, not specific to Lyme disease. Here in Ontario, um, every patient who presents with suspected Lyme can get tested through the Public Health Lab of Ontario that performs a very specific antibody test that it remains positive for the rest of your life if you've had if you've had exposure to Lyme disease. So I think it's important for patients to read up on Lyme disease and the signs and symptoms and to speak to their healthcare professionals. But it's also important to keep in mind that this has become, uh, unfortunately, an area where many people have been taken advantage of and provided treatments that are extremely harmful and provide no benefit. So what is the treatment? Is it an antibiotic? Yeah, so for primary Lyme disease, it's a short course of an oral antibiotic called doxycycline. If you have more advanced manifestations, such as in secondary or tertiary Lyme disease, including neurological manifestations, you could use another uh, an intravenous antibiotic uh, within the penicillin family called ceftriaxone. But the oral antibiotic is extremely effective. It's given uh, early on when presenting with the early phase of the disease at treating disease. The other important thing to remember is that if you present to this to a hospital with certain criteria with an exposure to a tick, you can be given what's called antibiotic prophylaxis, which means given a dose of this antibiotic called doxycycline to prevent the progression of the illness right at the onset of exposure to the tick. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Irma in Hamilton. Hello, Irma. Irma, are you there? No? Yes, go yes, ahead. You're on the air. This is Irma, and I uh, I just wanted to say, uh, if I had to go to take ticks to the doctor every time I had the other day, I walked my dog, and I came back with 20 ticks on me. Oh God. The dogs, every single night, I take off 6 to 12 or 15 ticks off of each of them. I have four dogs. And I don't think the doctors would be interested in me going to them with all those ticks. <laughs> so you just have to, you just have Maybe to. Maybe you want to walk somewhere else? <laughs> well, I can't Irma, really can, walk. Can I ask what part of Ontario you're, where you're calling from? I'm in the Niagara region. Niagara, I'm in, okay. uh, Yeah. And I just make sure that, uh, you know, sometimes I wake up and I feel like something crawling and I grab it. Once, not very often, they get attached because I keep checking. You have to keep checking all the time if you have animals. And if you're walking out with them, even with long boots and a coat, I came back with them crawling all over my coat, my leg, my pants, mm-hmm. everywhere. They don't scare me. I mean, you just, I... Clearly. And I get the little buggers out of those dogs uh, and squish them uh, one by one by one. <laughs> So have you, have Every you tried night. A, a strong, um, a strong pesticide, uh, not pesticide, repellent, like a DEET or a permethrin on your clothes? No, I don't. I don't like using chemicals. I just prefer, right. you know, when we come back from the walk, I just take them all off. Uh, it, is is that dangerous? Um, exposing yourself to so many ticks? Well, I've been doing it for years, and I'm eighty, and I'm still a very healthy lady. <laughs> so. <laughs> Okay. I don't worry about it. I just make sure we get rid of them every day. Okay. I just wanted to say people shouldn't be so terrified. Go for yeah. your walk. Just check yourself afterwards and get rid of, take them off. Or... 
have to. I have one of those old irons that people used to iron their clothes with, and I have a little booklet, and I stick them inside the booklet, and I push them with the iron. <laughs> okay, Irma, thanks for that. I don't know. Well, that think, sounds pretty scary it, to me. I think one important point there is, I, I think that's a good point about not being afraid. I think, um, you know, with, with, with careful uh, protection, um, you know, we've got to weigh the risk of, uh, you know, staying indoors all summer uh, is probably, uh, you know, worse than, um, than the risk of picking up a few ticks. And certainly if we you wear the right clothing and, you know, I, I work in the field uh, through my research. We do a lot of field work. I always wear long pants, tuck my, my pants into my socks and spray from the waist down with, uh, with a strong uh, repellent and, uh, you know, knock on wood, I've never had a, a, an embedded tick yet. So I, th- I think, you know, the, it's important that people are aware of these risks, but um, we, we can't live in fear. Well, exactly. And, and uh, DEET, Dr. Vaseman, I think it's a natural thing anyway. Yeah, no, I think there's some good points made by that person as well, that um, if you have lots of exposure to ticks and it's routine every day, certainly you should be doing all those things that were mentioned to try to prevent um, the ticks from attaching, but you don't need to submit those ticks, all of them, every time. It's, so it's, that kind of advice is really for the people who have rarely have exposure to ticks and have noticed one and are uncertain. But if you're living in an area where you get lots of tick exposure and you're experienced with how to remove them and with the signs and symptoms of illness, then certainly you don't need to submit each one. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, to the DEET, uh, should people be afraid of DEET? It's, it's a natural thing, is it not? Uh, well, I think people should talk to their doctors about what they what they feel safe. I, I understand with that person's concerns about DEET or other chemicals to be using as repellents. Uh, generally speaking, you should try to avoid chemicals, but if there's no other way to prevent ticks from attaching to you, you certainly can use other things. Uh, permethrin was also mentioned as other things you can use, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, we are starting to run out of time. Dr. Kalati, is that your uh, parting message? Uh, you know, watch out, but don't be afraid. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy. We've got a, a nice summer coming up. Um, you know, enjoy it while mm-hmm. it lasts. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Vaseman? Yep, absolutely. I think people just need to be aware of how to prevent ticks from attaching and then signs and symptoms of illness if they do have attachments. Okay. Anything else? That does it. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Robert Kalati and Dr. Alon Vaseman. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that is all the time we have for today. Now, as you've been hearing here, I will be back at 8 o'clock for an election special with Marissa Lennox. And you're going to be able to relax and listen to your favorite music. And as soon as stuff happens, we'll come in and we'll keep you updated. So it can be a kind of chill election night with us. And of course, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And I am sure that I will then hear all your thoughts on what has transpired tonight. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.